0: next guest this morning and that is of course michael rothner principal of ash morgan michael great to catch up with you again we'll get into the ash morgan business shortly but firstly i want to get an understanding of michael rothner the person tell us a little bit about your background if you could and and your upbringing
1: sure well um great to see you again rob Uh, i grew up in sydney um, eastern suburbs went to school at mariah college um, went to university at new south wales university and graduated with um a degree in uh, economics and finance,
0: but I'd be interested to get an understanding of of why why commerce, why business, why why finance at university. Where did that come from? Do you have a family history in that sort of field, or uh, not
1: really? Um, my, I just always had an interest in business, and I, I always sort of sort of gravitated towards people that were um, were in business, and I just I always thought that probably finance and commerce was probably the best route to making money. So,
0: and post university, what what came next? Where did you? Where did you see your career going at that early so stage? So when I
1: graduated, I, I started actually working in stockbroking, so I was working for a firm called Ord Minette. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I managed, was lucky enough to be on their graduate training program and when I finished university. And I was there for a year, and, and then I met my partner, Michael Moss, who was the founder of Ash Morgan. And, um, and that was back in the early 90s.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, so the business launched, I think, as you said there, 1990, 1991, thereabouts. So
1: Michael Moss actually started the business in 81. 81. And I joined him in
0: 1990. 1990. And talk to us about the business at, at that stage. What was it? What, what was its specialty?
1: So it was really a small mortgage-broking business. Um, in those days, that was pre-money that was going towards... Um, you know institutions and superannuation funds etc and we used to actually arrange funding either through the banks or that people couldn't get money through the banks uh it was through lawyers funds and trusts etc and uh, we were sort of at the at the forefront i suppose of non-bank lending
0: and we were speaking about that off camera before so the business really is out of the non-bank lending space so to speak now but it was doing it long before some of these other groups that have arisen recently, what what was the opportunity that you and Michael saw at the time to move into that?
1: Um, We were really pioneers in that space to be honest with you because I mean if I look back to that time it was really us and another group called Balmain who was obviously still around and still in that space. were actually doing that sort of non-bank lending and I guess we were fortunate enough that um, with changes to superannuation and what was happening in the industry, the non-bank sector started to expand quite rapidly. Um, And you had a lot of the institutions and, um, you know, lots of different groups that came into the market that wanted to have exposure to real estate.
0: And take us through the growth of the business. So as you said, you joined in 1990, Michael established the business in in 81. How's it grown to the size that it is today?
1: Well, we went through this large growth when we were sort of a a commercial origination business. We we became actually the largest origination group in the country. Up until the sort of global financial crisis in 2007, 2008, so so really what happened, as I said, is that um, in the early years we were dealing with sort of smaller private lenders. Um, That then expanded quite significantly in the sort of mid to late 90s. We were dealing with a lot of offshore banks that came into the business and mortgage trusts that started to establish themselves, and we were really at the forefront of originating deals for a lot of these groups. So we really grew up until sort of in the financing business, sort of 2007, 2008, at which point we were sort of had offices around the country, were originating sort of in excess of sort of three and a half billion dollars a year, which even today is a big number. Um, and yeah, that was, that was our business back then. So we, was really, we were really sort of the conduit to people accessing funds, um, both through the major banks and then and, and through the whole non-banking sector.
0: And as I understand it, in 2010, the business shifted away from being a non-bank lender into investing directly into property. What, what prompted that transition?
1: So I think obviously the shift came after the global financial crisis and, and, and really what happened then is well, there was a complete sort of um, tightening and, and, and reset of the finance markets and, and, and you would be aware of what happened then when you know, a lot of the offshore banks left the country, mortgage trusts, I mean the government guarantee came in, so money stopped flowing into mortgage trusts. And, and I think the other thing that happened, you had a massive consolidation in the banking industry here. So you had, you know, Westpac taking over St George and CBA taking over Bankwest. So it became a really, really tight, I think at that time, when we were sort of, you know, at the peak of the financing business, I think close to sort of 40% of lending came from the non-bank sector um, post that global financial crisis, I think the numbers at the time I read went as high as sort of 93% was just consolidated amongst the four major banks. So we felt that our differentiation wasn't what it obviously was when we were sort of at the peak of our business. So we sort of pivoted the business towards a sort of private equity real estate model. We were always doing deals at the time, we were always sort of investing with clients in transactions. Um, but after that, you know, at that time we just thought, saw an opportunity to repivot the business.
0: And what was the mandate for investing in assets at that time? So 11 or 12 years ago, and and has that changed?
1: Yeah, that's changed quite significantly. Because when we started, we were really dealing with just onshore, local high net worth investors. It was sort of smaller, sort of asset, generally, you know, up to sort of that sort of 7,500 mil mark. Um, across the board, we were investing in office, in retail, um, even in residential, etc. And uh, we um, we've sort of changed that now because as the business has grown. Um, we've started to sort of in the last, particularly in the last sort of five years, tapped into a lot of offshore capital, a lot of large institutional groups and LPs and GPs that invest in our transactions.
0: And has that made sourcing opportunities more easy or more difficult, given that other groups are also accessing offshore capital and therefore the price being paid for assets keeps going up and up?
1: Well, I think that... One thing that's really important is track record. So once you start to build a track record and you're bringing in capital and people can see that you're performing, um, people sort of want to get on the bandwagon. Um, And that's really what happened with us. We sort of were successful with onshore investors and then when we tapped into some offshore groups um, and have exited quite a number of transactions, they've all been really profitable um, for our investors. So it's been easier. I guess that's changed probably in the last two years. As you would know, three years since obviously COVID, and, and particularly in the last six months, even with what's happening with interest rates and and, and and I suppose sort of you know investment houses sort of reassessing their 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 returns and what sort of assets they want to invest in.
0: Take us through the investment, the key investment fundamentals that you and the team consider here before you know acquiring an asset. And I suppose the second part of that is when you're bringing in these offshore groups to provide capital to Ash Morgan. Do you still make the final decision as part of your investment committee, or does it have to run in parallel with their investment committee?
1: So generally what happens is we, so coming back to your first question about the assets that we really look for, I guess we're looking in very liquid markets, we're buying sort of, you know, deep value, um, generally we look at a few fundamental things, are we buying below replacement cost? What's the infrastructure around the specific area? Um, We look at the thesis in terms of whether it's office, about our thoughts in terms of how much supply is coming on, etc. So we do a lot of work in terms of our analysis and DD. So before we even speak to any of our investors, both offshore or onshore, we've actually signed ourselves off on our own IC process. And then we basically then go and speak to groups that, you know, we, we basically go and underwrite it and then we go and raise the capital.
0: And is it a sector agnostic approach, or do you have certain interests in one sector or the other?
1: More recently, we focus mainly in the office market, and that's really sort of primarily in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Um, mixed use. We have a large asset in Melbourne, um, the District Docklands, um, and we've also quite we've got exposure to sort of large format retail as well. We have a, an asset out at uh, at Kasula, um, which is in sort of southwest Sydney.
0: And the asset that you're referring to in Melbourne is, of course, the District Docklands. Walk us through that project, how it came about, how your involvement came, and then sort of where it's at now and where it could go.
1: So that was really the first large project that we did, which was back in 2014, when we bought in a sort of offshore Cornerstone investor partner. And, and really when we bought that, it was a bit of a sort of a white elephant, um, it was something that I mean, you're obviously coming from Melbourne, familiar with the Docklands area. Um, it's taken us quite a while to reposition that asset. Um, it was sort of an unsuccessful discount factory outlet, which we've you know pivoted towards a completely mixed use. We've built an entertainment precinct. We've built a fresh food precinct. Um, We're pivoting, as I said to you before, the interview, the upstairs more towards commercial. So it's a real mixed-use asset. We just got an approval now, a master plan approval to do 160,000 metres of mixed-use. So there'll be quite a bit of of BTR and BTE, built to rent and built to sell. So um, It's been a long journey, that asset, and it's taken a lot of time, and and, and we've got a great team down there. Um, But um, I think the outcome will be very successful.
0: There's also the project in conjunction with Toga Group here in Darlinghurst. Take us through that project and, and how the relationship with Toga Group was was formed.
1: We've known Toga, the, the families have been friends in this business and their business for many, many years. Um, it was an asset that um, the council took to market going back a while. And it was we just thought that again, fitting into sort of our investment criteria, it was a very strategically located asset where we felt we could really add value. So um, we brought Toga into that and brought their expertise in terms of the sort of project management delivery aspect. And it's going to be a great project. It, it runs, I don't know whether you've been past it, but it's sort of over three blocks. Um, it's going to be a great sort of funky offices and you know, mainly sort of you know, um, tech and creative sort of usage as well as sort of quite a bit of sort of retail and the hospitality.
0: Given that Ash Morgan's in the private markets, does that give you more flexibility than, say, some of these listed groups who wouldn't look at an asset like that because it's too far out of the core CBD or it's not large enough to fit their requirements?
1: I'm not so sure about location-wise, because, I mean, you know, all listed groups look at assets all around the whole country. I think it's more about the capacity to be nimble and quick. So, so really, I think where we can come in and, and, and generally anything that we've looked at and we've said we're going to buy, we've bought. So I think we've built confidence with sort of vendors and agents that if we say we're going to do something, we do it. So it's actually been sort of, you know, I think that the sort of, one of the sort of, I suppose, secrets to sort of, I suppose, our success is our capacity to be able to move quickly.
0: So you mentioned there the growth trajectory that Ash Morgan's been on. As I understand it, a number of these newly formed groups have actually been former alumni of of Ash Morgan. Talk to us about the impact that you've seen the business has had, more broadly speaking, on on the rise of some of these other funds. Yeah, that's
1: interesting that you mention that, because if I look at all of these sort of larger non-bank lenders today in the market, they're all sort of ex-Ash Morgan guys, whether it's Qualitas, Wingate, um, Monarch, Maxcap, wherever. So, um, look, I think that they, they, they had a good schooling in Ash Morgan, and I think that it's held them in good stead in terms of being able to uh, to actually grow and, and, and build that whole industry.
0: What are, the, what are the fundamentals to success, do you think, in property investment?
1: Oh, I think it's obviously location, 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 as you've heard <laughs> in every market. But I think it's also being able to ride cycles, um, yeah, uh, not being a yield tourist, which is one of the interesting lines we got when we used to travel about, you know, going outside and to getting a higher return by going into sort of areas which are a little bit um, uh, fringy, so to speak. So yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's really basic stuff. I, I don't think it's anything too, too sort of, I mean, you can spend lots of time going through sort of feasibilities and analysis, et cetera, but fundamentally you walk the site, you look where it is, you see what the upside is, what the infrastructure is around it. And, uh, and, and, and price point where you're buying it at.
0: If you were to do a health check generally on the Australian commercial property market, at the moment, I know that you're heavily involved in, in office, are there any other sectors where you're seeing opportunities or vice versa that, you, that you're avoiding?
1: I, look, it's not a matter of us avoiding, it's, a, it's more about where our talents and skill sets lie. So um, we've really built skill sets in that office space and in that mixed use space and retail. Um, so we've sort of liked to stick to our knitting. I, I think at the moment there's going to be some opportunities in the residential space. We're already seeing that with the sort of rising interest rate environment and what's happening, and some stress that's happening with some of these lenders that have have come into the to the mix now. And sort of whether it's bank or non bank, um, with potentially sites under stress. I mean, we actually have a view that we actually think the residential market, medium to long term, is going to be very strong as as you know, as more people come into the country and more students come in, and the, you know. COVID sort of passes, etc. And we think there's going to be a lot more demand and you're seeing it already in terms of what's happened with rentals, etc. So um, that sector, I think, you know, we're, we're quite bullish on.
0: What's your gauge on sentiment amongst offshore groups? You're going to Singapore soon, you're regularly making trips overseas. What's their appetite for Australian property?
1: Historically, it's been very, very strong. I mean, I think that, that that seems to be remaining. I think obviously the dynamics in Hong Kong is changing now. You're seeing a lot of people, a lot of our capital comes out of Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, given what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment, there's been a, quite a big outflux of people from Hong Kong moving to Singapore. I think it would be very smart for, for example, this country to be able to open its door to immigration for, for groups like that that are bringing capital, gonna employ people, et cetera, because there's a lot of capital that's obviously trying to leave um, that jurisdiction. I think that um, generally, you know, capital for transactions um, remains very strong. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we were in the market recently for for an asset that we bought in Sydney here, and uh, we had strong uh, demand for, for investment.
0: And is that amongst sort of traditional high net worth groups, but are you also seeing an influx of demand from newly formed family offices, whether they're people that have made sort of money in technology or, or property or, or some of these other industries. And then on top of that, what about superannuation funds there, as I understand it, making a heavy push into investing in some of these private equity funds. Have they carried that over into real estate private equity?
1: There's a couple of questions there. I think the first thing is that um, when we raise capital, we raise capital with high net worths as well as sort of offshore. Generally we have a cornerstone in each of our, each of, each of our transactions and we mix that and we also co-invest in everything we do as well. Um, The super money that we get is generally from high net worths private.
0: Just in terms of acquiring assets, are you finding that more challenging now and to be able to sort of fit your investment fundamentals? Are you having to pay, I mean things may change in the short to medium term, but have you had to pay over the past two or three years a much lower yield than you would have paid? historically speaking, or you would have accepted?
1: So we've been quite disciplined in our approach in terms of when we look at assets. So we look for certain return hurdles, et cetera, based on, and we're very much sort of risk return guys. So basically we sort of price things for for where the risk profile is. Um, we, haven't, we haven't bought a lot in the last couple of years. We've really bought two assets over COVID. So we haven't been chasing assets. I think there's probably more opportunities coming to the market now. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things you said earlier is, you know, one of the, one of the, I suppose, important attributes in being successful in real estate is being patient. Um, and I think that you know we've been particularly patient over the last three years when things have been going sort of ridiculous yields.
0: When you look at the medium to long term, what's your gauge on where things are heading? If you speak to some people in finance seasoned veterans in finance, they're confident that things are going to go south over the next 12 months. Is that something that you share or are you used of more bullish?
1: Look, it's very hard. It's crystal ball stuff. I think there's obviously two Schools of thought, I mean, you know, depending on who you who you want to listen to. My view is I think that things are not going to be as bad as what people expect. I think that there will be a little bit of shake-up in the market. I mean, you've seen interest rates come up now 2% in the last six months. That hasn't really filtered through yet. Um, surely that's going to have an effect on cap rates, and particularly where people are, you know, holding on to sort of non-income producing assets. Um, that may put pressure, depending on what sort of gearing they're at. Um, but, but I do think that um, there will be opportunities but I don't see that there's gonna be any bloodbath coming in the next sort of six to 12 months.
0: Just to close out our discussion, have there been any mistakes over the journey? And if so, have you been able to learn from those mistakes?
1: Of course there's been mistakes over the journey and we learnt a lot from our financing days when we um, when we built the sort of, I suppose, as I said to you, the largest commercial origination business in the country. I, I think in terms of learning, uh, look, I think the most important thing is that refer back to sort of, obviously, opportunities and deals that you've done where they haven't actually gone according to plan, Um, and keep that in mind for future transactions that are sort of similar vein, if you know what I mean. I think that, you know, one of the things that we've learned is, for example, that as things got very expensive, um, we adjusted our sort of risk-reward return when we were looking for sort of more stable, you know, stronger assets in terms of income, because people were really looking for cash flow rather than for upside growth and taking risk on on
0: assets finally what's next for michael rothner and ash morgan
1: um i think a bit more of the same we're going to keep buying assets looking for opportunities we're going to actually try and see whether this market shakes through a few things that wouldn't normally be available um in a sort of stable environment so yeah
0: michael always a pleasure to catch up with you thanks for your time
1: great to talk to you rob thanks for yours